Welcome to episode 115 of the Blooms and Barnacles podcast, where we talk about all things related to James Joyce's Ulysses. I'm Kelly. And I'm Dermot. How are you doing today, Dermot? Pretty good. Great. All right. So um, we have chosen a really seasonally appropriate topic today as we record this on the brink of August, which is the Feast of Passover, which generally takes place in the spring. Mm -hmm. So... Um, anyway, I, I like something about doing a holiday a little, a little out of step with the, the actual flow of the year. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, we'll get more into why we're talking about Passover in a minute. Um, but I want to get a little business out of the way first. First of all, we are a blog as well as a podcast, and I am in the midst of writing a brand new blog post that you're really going to enjoy about a topic you've probably never thought of in terms of Ulysses, and that is the... The Boar War. <laughs> Been talking about it for a week. That's why I thought I could throw to you without Everyone forgets it. about it. You guys will have yep. forgotten about it the second you stop listening to this episode. It what does, were they talking about? It, it slides right off your brain, yeah. yeah. Um, but it was big news in 1899, which mm -hmm. is a scant few years before Ulysses. And so... Uh, Keep an eye out for a new blog post called Up the Boars in the next uh, week or so if you're listening to this as it comes out. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that when it does come out. Um, Dermot will do some artwork for that episode, but he has already done artwork for this episode, and I'd like him to talk about that image now. Yeah, it's the uh, plague of frogs that God sent to uh, poor old Ramesses II, mm -hmm. wasn't it? And I thought, I, I can't be arsed drawing like 10,000 frogs. Mm -hmm. So I'll just draw one big one. And and actually, now that I think about it, that would have been a much cooler curse if God had sent one giant frog uh -huh. to fight the Egyptians rather yeah. than lots of little ones. Mm -hmm. I think that would have sent a clear message. And and the whole thing would have ended And overnight. he's kind of doing a... Like yeah, he's these, like... Uh, like slapping his fist into his kids. palm for yeah. audio only. Yes, yeah. So anyway, I think it was more fun. So why did anyway. you choose the frog rather than the uh, more traditional Passover uh, plague, which is the angel of death taking the first son, firstborn son of all the Egyptians? It's too scary. I like when you do the scary well, ones, um, But you want to do a comedic one. A funny frog, yeah. Okay, funny yeah. Frog. <laughs> okay. I mean, that, that, that sums it up, I think. Yeah. All right. If somebody wants to keep an eye on our blog... Or see any of your artwork, where can they do that? Bloomsandbarnacles.com. Yeah, or check out our Instagram page mm. where we post all of your artwork um, and give previews of all of our upcoming projects. Uh, a few shout outs. Uh, first of all, thank you to all of our donors over at PayPal and um, as well as our subscribers on Patreon. Um, if you'd like to support the show financially, we really do appreciate it. It helps us do lots of things that we couldn't do otherwise. If you'd like to contribute, you can go to our website, bloomsandbarnacles.com. And you'll find a little donate button in the upper right-hand corner where you can make a one-time donation on PayPal. And if you'd like to do a recurring donation, I strongly suggest you check out our Patreon page at patreon.com slash barnaclecast. And there'll be a link to that in the description of our show in your app of choice. And if you subscribe, subscribe to our Patreon, you get lots of perks, including early access to our episodes, video versions of all of our content, and a bonus episode just for you, 
once a month. And we're on the cusp of bringing out our August episode. Would you like to talk a little bit about that? That's my interview about with the, Robert. Uh, with Robert yeah. about drawing drawing cartoons. It's just me and Robert talking about. Yeah, so usually Blooms and Barnacles is mainly me, mm-hmm. and Dermot's a very important element. But I think I kind of pilot the ship. Yeah, uh, that's what pilots do, right? <laughs> You're the Joyce head, um, right? But I've I've always fantasized about having a more Dermot focused episode because you mm. do bring a lot. To the show, and that's what we did for our bonus this month. So you talked to Robert Berry, who mm-hmm. is a, a scholar and a gentleman and a listener of Blooms and Barnacles. And do you want to talk a little bit about the show you, you did with? Yeah, Robert? we just had a chat about the. Uh, the uh, it's kind of different subject matter because mm-hmm. we're mostly talking from the point of view of um, illustration mm-hmm. and uh, art styles mm-hmm. and uh, approaches in terms of mm-hmm. doing it. And his project's enormous; like mm-hmm. it's enormous. Um, whereas he does I, Ulysses scene, right? Oh, yeah, like the whole yeah. the whole book, like you know, it's fairly well styles. known. Yeah. yeah, yeah, very much. And I told him I very much in the style. It reminded me of the art I saw of the nineteen seventies underground comics, which mm-hmm. I definitely mean as a compliment. Like a lot of very interesting mm-hmm. art styles there. It's one of my favorite periods, and um, so yeah, no, it's uh, it's interesting for anybody who wants just to hear like a different mm-hmm. uh, sliver of kind of the the approach to dealing with the work of art. Mm-hmm. How you deal with the illustration aspect of it. And we got Tolkien into it at one point. Oh, okay. Because um, he's a big Tolkien fan. Oh, which cool. I didn't know when we began talking. Yes. Um, Something he shares with me. Yes, yes, yes. The interesting thing about uh, about this content too is like how far, how wide it can go mm-hmm. with, you know, um, different people and how they treat it and the different angles they can take from the book. There's mm-hmm. so many. Uh, it was interesting and I uh, wanted to talk to somebody just from the, the drawing sphere. Yeah, Robert emailed me a few months ago which you can if you want to email us please do at blooms a n d barnacles at gmail.com pretty much anyone who has emailed us and asked to talk to us on the podcast has been interesting so if you have that desire reach out to us because yes. you're probably also interesting unless you're uncle Colum from the dairy girls well you seeing as how he's a fictional character i think we're safe <laughs> yeah um but robert said that he felt that he and dermot needed to connect and talk about quote drawing this fucking thing (laughs) and so we offer that to you our patrons Mm. in august of this year so you can check that out and all of our back bonus episodes as well at our patreon so i think for our our last one we dropped a little preview in the the free feed and we'll do the same again that felt like a good thing yeah the youtube channel is a good spot for uh, like little trailers teasers to see if it's worth Mm -hmm. your while to contribute or not yep so you can also follow us on youtube uh, I'm focusing more on Instagram and Facebook these days because, uh, you know, everybody loves a sinking ship, but Twitter is sinking pretty hard. X, you mean? Yeah. Uh, that, mm-hmm. I, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyway, if you'd like to support us in a non-monetary fashion, uh, you can leave us a review on your favorite podcast app of choice uh, or tell a friend who you think would in- enjoy it or uh, force them to listen to it in a long car ride. Um, that's a great way to indoctrinate people into podcasts you like rather than just suggesting it. Mm-hmm. And finally, you can subscribe to our newsletter, which we send out once a month uh, with all of the links for that month's work in it and previews of upcoming projects. And it's totally free. You can find that once more at bloomsandbarnacles.com. Okay, let's get into this episode, which is titled, And It Was the Feast of the Passover. Mm-hmm. Do you know why we're going to talk about Passover today? Oh, God. No. Okay, well, you'll find out. Uh, We are in the seventh episode of Ulysses entitled Aeolus, 
And we are going to cover one, two, three, and four of the um, bold headlines, starting with orthographical and ending with the one that matches the title of this episode. Do you know what the word orthographical means? It's like a downward projection when you're doing like a blueprint. Oh, that's very interesting. In uh, ortho- orthography is spelling. It's like a fancy okay. word for spelling. I think it's orthographic. Mm-hmm. It's it's some sort of projection. Mm-hmm. It's isometric. I think it's. I think it's a down view. I'll transpose it. It, it may well be. One. I you know, but my uh, my background is a, a language teacher, so that's how mm-hmm. I know that. And yours is a, a draftsman of sorts. Graphical, so. yeah. yeah, orthographical. Okay, well, orthographical is the title of our first section, mm-hmm. so. Why don't you go ahead and read it? Okay. This this one is a, a fun one to read. So uh, just just whack your way through it. And uh, if you need help, let me know. Okay. Orthographical. Want to be sure of his spelling. Proof fever. Martin Cunningham forgot to give us his spelling bee conundrum this morning. It is amusing to view the on-par one. Our alleles and barra. Or ours too, is it? Double S meant of a harassed peddler. While ga- gauging all the symmetry... With a Y of appeal pair under a cemetery wall. Silly, isn't it? Cemetery put in, of course, on account of the symmetry. I should have said when he clapped on his topper. Thank you. I ought to have said something about an old hat or something. No, I could have said. Looks as good as new now. See his fizz then. Silt. The nethermost deck of the first machine jogged forward its flyboard with slit the first batch of choirfold papers. Silt. Almost human the way it silt to call attention, doing its level best to speak. That door too, silt creaking, asking to be shut. Everything speaks in its own way, silt. Okay, what do you think <clears throat> is going on here? Is he by the machine, the printing machine? Yes. The printing press? Yeah, so that, that final paragraph there, the silt is the sound of the paper like Coming shooting out. through the machine. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And it sounds like it's a, it says a first batch of choir folded papers. So I'm not sure if it's printing them or if it's actually a machine that folds them or if it does both. So the machine kind of comes to life. And uh, I think uh, it's this nice little passage where you see for a moment an animated world, right? Where the machines have, you know, some sort of agency or mind of their own. The door has a mind of its own. They all speak. Yeah. Now the other stuff, when he's going through all that business. All right. That's the first paragraph there. Oof. Uh... Proof fever is a proofing the text, right? Making mm-hmm. sure you've spelt it right. Yeah. Because um, they're selling everything by hand. Yeah. Um, yeah. With little. The hot obviously, press they do things. make mistakes. Yes. Just ask Alexander Kays. Yes. Yes. Or Larry David, beloved aunt. Mm-hmm. Um, Martin Cunningham forgot to give us his spelling beacon. So this is like he must give them like little word puzzles every morning, mm-hmm. as Alfie yes. does. Yes. 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 Oh, okay. So it's amusing to view the on par. Now, par we know is paragraph. From not here this, oh this is a different on par okay yeah. alleles i thought an allele was like a thing in dna like a base pairs you of are DNA. you are being too smart right now yeah uh embarra to ours <laughs> is it to view the on par one or alleles embarra to uh, that is a puzzle i can't like talking right. about a spelling bee conundrum i think that's a spelling bee conundrum mm-hmm. double s meant of a harassed peddler while gauging au AU was also, I think, the um, symbol for gold. The symmetry with a Y of a peeled pear under a cemetery wall. And then there's a cemetery symmetry pun. But I okay. cannot unpick that. I have 
Do you no want me to unpick it for you? Please. I've watched lots of people read this, and it's um, it's a pu- it is a puzzle. And Joyce loved puzzles, and like I said, you are being way too smart right now because it's much stupider than that. Okay. Okay. You know, like today people do like Wordle and things yeah. like that, where there's some little puzzle and you try to work it out. So I don't know if this is something that he like does of his own accord or if it's in the newspaper or something. Mm-hmm. So he, he gives them these little spelling challenges. So it is amusing to view the unpar should be it's part of unparalleled. So he's he's thinking unpair one R allel because parallel is a difficult word to spell. There's one R then two L's, then one L. So he's thinking unpair, one R, allel, embera, two R's is it? So embarrass, does it have one R or two R's? Mm-hmm. Right. Double S-ment, uh, so embarrassment, embera, two R's is it? Double S-ment of a harassed peddler while gauging AU, the symmetry with a Y of a peeled pear under a cemetery wall. Silly, isn't it? Cemetery put in, of course, on account of the symmetry, which I noticed when you said sem- you say cemetery and symmetry, which mm-hmm. are much closer. Right. So that's actually a stronger pun than I realized until just now. Do you get it now? Yeah. Yeah. So he's thinking about the spellings of like past spelling bee conundrums oh, that okay. Martin Cunningham gave him. Okay. Yeah. And obviously goes into the spelling used by the typesetters um, and whatnot. That that's about it. Like, there's okay. not. I don't have much more to say than that. So we'll move on All to right. the next noted churchman and occasional contributor. The foreman handed back the galley page suddenly, saying, "Wait, where's the archbishop's letter? It's to be repeated in the Telegraph. Where? What's his name?" He looked about him round his loud, unanswering machines. "Monks, sir," a voice asked from the casting box. "Aye, where's monks?" "Monks." Mister Bloom took up his cutting. Time to get out. And I'll get the design, Mr. Donetti, he said, and you'll give it a good place, I know. Monks! Yes, sir. Three months renewal. Want to get some wind off my chest first. Try it anyhow. Ribbon August. Good idea. Her show month. Balls Bridge. Tourists over for the show. Okay. What do you think? So there's a little back and forth between Donetti, the printer, and mm-hmm. some of the underlings, I assume. Is he, is he yelling yeah. at poor old monks? Monks in trouble? So remember how we talked about how... Um you know, the paper has a troubled relationship with the archbishop mm-hmm. and the cardinal and all this. Yeah. Um, so apparently he's supposed to have a letter in the paper and they've left it out. And so now he's hunting down monks who mm-hmm. will meet in a minute. Oh, great that his name is Monks as well. Mm-hmm. What do religious, you like about that? It's a religious struggle between the bishop and the monk. Mm, yeah. Mm. I always think uh, the introduction of monks who will see um, is a real person. Mm-hmm. Um, that... You know, there, there, it, it, it draws this nice little connection to, I think, you know, the copying of texts is something that monks used to do mm-hmm. in a scriptorium. Yes, yeah. And now we see, we flash forwarded to 1904, where monks are, is still doing the copying of texts, but now is aided with a bunch of sentient printing machines. Mm-hmm. And he's still, he's copying the archbishop's letter, mm-hmm. but in a much different way. Yeah. So I kind of like that little parallel. Yeah. P-A-R-R-E-L-L. Oh, no, I'm so bad. I, <laughs> I need spell check. <laughs> um, I would not, I would have been a terrible typesetter. But uh, it's a nice little, it's a nice little echo. Sometimes stories rhyme. 
Oh, yes, very good, Mr. <laughs> Lucas. Uh, okay. You know the word, the word cliche comes from? Where does cliche come from? When people were setting, apparently, when people were setting texts with mm. like a uh, pot with like movable type, they mm. would be, they would realize very quickly, oh, how many times have we set this string of letters? Yeah. So instead of having to redo these, like even, mm. even some of them very bland and then they, you know, mm. they would set them and then click keep it. Mm -hmm. And then they wouldn't move it. So that was a cliche. Mm -hmm. And so a cliche is from typesetting. It's for any little block okay. of words that are like used very, very frequently, including actual cliches. Mm -hmm. And you put it out, slot it in, and that saves you having to set those 17 or 20 yes. or 50 letters. Or and whatever. I suppose then the writers are encouraged to use those terms of phrase. I don't know. Okay. I, don't, I, th I think they would just drop the whole thing on the poor old print setters and let them rot. Mm, that, yeah. yeah. That actually makes more sense. Mm. I think uppercase and lowercase letters comes from the same as well, because the capital letters they in the drawer, the uppercase, lower. Yes, yeah. I used to have to set text by hand in the eighties with letter set. Okay, I don't is, know what that is. Uh, transferable sheets. You used to buy them, and okay. um, used to my when I used to work for my uncle, we were uh, as a graphic artist in mm -hmm. Westland Row, which is near where Owen took us. You worked us in the for, ancient concert. Uh, yes, I worked in one of those old buildings, and. Um, it was then a print shop in the 1980s, long gone now. Um, but we used to set like you were text to the bleak pulpit of St. Mark. When you see like uh, a bag of any food product and there's a list of ingredients in eight point font, mm -hmm. and that would have been set letter by letter by hand so with a sheet. spelling out xanthan gum. You'd, you'd write it out and then you get on the oh, one, wow. and the one thing you would hear is, oh God, Helvetica 10 point. And today on a computer, you type it out and you move on. But then we would have to like, you'd line out the, th the thing with like mm -hmm. H pencil. And then you'd, okay, then uh, X, uppercase. And then you go to the, it would have the upper and lowercase on the same sheet. Mm -hmm. Then you go to the lowercase and you'd like, you'd put your, in the right place and you'd put it down. And then you'd very carefully lift up the plastic sheet and the little letters mm -hmm. come down. And then one of the little legs of the letter A would tear off. And then you got to get a scalpel and scrape off the A and get the next thing and put it down. Mm -hmm. And then you realize you've only got like six A's left on the sheet. Is there another sheet of Helvetica? No. Mm -hmm. So you have to put on your coat and you walk down to Harcourt Street to Kennedy's and you go, do you have any sheets of Helvetica 10 point? That'll be a quid. And then you buy that and you walk back. And then you keep doing that until you go completely mad. That's incredible. It's, I'm realizing it's something I've never thought of how it was done. Uh -huh. Yeah, I got the, the last kick in the ass of, <laughs> of having to do that. And then my uncle um, was basically put out of that kind of work by computers. He couldn't, uh -huh. Liam was a genius, but he could not figure out. One whole segue here, my uncle. Mm -hmm. um, I can drop his obituary in here too. Sure. Um, he, uh, he was ruined by, mm -hmm. by computers. He just couldn't handle them and he was being out-competed by competitors who were just throwing it down on a computer and right. not doing it particularly well because the kerning wasn't nice on those early machines but they, they were okay faster better cheaper better's going out the window you know so uh, i asked my dad about 10 years later well, how's liam doing he said he's doing great i said wow what because he, I, I, he was actually going out of business and he said no he's he was a calligrapher so he began doing calligraphy and he began doing like calli calligraphic goose quill pens like a medieval monk and he was doing these like beautiful curlicue, like Moorish like things that you cannot do on a computer. It requires actual manual skill and artistry. 
And I said to my dad, I'm an idiot. I should have done this years ago. Like he was making a fortune mm-hmm. because people will pay when having a wedding. Posh people right. in Dublin will pay anything to have the best wedding invitations. And when you get these little calligraphic works of art, you know. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was an, an interesting case where going backwards down the tech tree actually saved mm-hmm. him. Which it, it, So there are case studies where, or scenarios where that can happen. Mm-hmm. So people need to keep an open mind, especially in the time we live. But yeah. Uh, yeah, no, there's all kinds of weird backwards moves, which is kind of fascinating to listen to because it brings back memories. Too, yeah, like, yeah. It's, I, that's why I like talking to you about this stuff because mm-hmm. I never I never would have thought about any of that. Yeah, but I never want to set text by hand. So what this okay. this stuff is like triggering. <laughs> okay. Well, <laughs> I can um, empathize with these poor devils in the let's, print shop. Uh, let's read a little bit more about printing printing and then we'll read about symbolism of Passover and Ulysses. <laughs> Go way back in time. Yeah. A day father. He walked on through the case room passing an old man, bowed, spectacled, aproned. Old monks, the day father. Queer lot of stuff he must have to put through his hands in his time. Obituary notices, pubs ads, speeches, divorce suits, found drowned. Nearing the end of his tether now, sober serious man with a bit in the savings bank I'd say. Wife a good cook and washer. Daughter working the machine in the parlor. Plain Jane. No damn nonsense. Okay, what do you make of that? (laughs) Seem to have enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess he's like near the end of his... He is an old man, right? Like he's... He's He's characterized that way here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What's a day father? Is that a specific thing? That's going to be my question for you. That's this... So one reason I wanted to do Blooms and Barnacles is that I had all of these questions about Ulysses that an annotation couldn't answer. Yeah. So I wanted to be better than the annotation. Okay. And one of those was, what is a day father? Never heard it. Because the, the, you know, the annotations don't give a satisfying answer to mm-hmm. what is a day father. I'm wondering, could it be like a, an actual job description in the printing room? If it is, I it don't is. know. It is, yeah. So Monks is the day father. The day father is... And a lot of this comes from a really great article on James Joyce online notes. A lot of the information in this section comes from this fantastic article on a really great website called James Joyce online notes. And the title of that is monks, night fathers and day fathers. And, uh, You'll, you can find it in our show notes at our website, and it's uh, really worth your time to read. If, like me, you've spent the last few years wondering what day father meant and never finding a satisfying answer. Well, I found one finally this week. So a day father refers to the oldest printer in the printing house. Okay. And it's interestingly, printing houses seem to have been called chapels in this era. Mm-hmm. So he's the day father of the chapel. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where the father comes in. Right. And so saying he's merely the oldest printer in the printing house isn't quite right because he was really the lead representative of the day staff of the printing house because there was also a night father. Mm-hmm. Ah! Oh, That's what I kept thinking when I was writing this. <laughs> the day father and the night father. Yeah, and they, they're the father. He's the day father of the chapel. So he, he runs, he's the, the lead printer in the day shift. And then there's a night father on the night shift. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That's it. That's, that's what it is. Okay. There in the article that I referenced, there are several period examples of it in use. Um, and he's referred to as the day father of the chapel. Right. So how about old monks? So 
the Simpson and Beck who were writing the article on James Joyce Online notes think he's a man called Edward Monks. Who's there weren't many people in Dublin at this time called Monks, and Edward Monks was a printer and compositor. That's how he was listed on the 1901 census. And so we noticed he's an old man. How old do you think he was in 1901, three years before this? Younger than me, probably. He was, yeah. Oh, 50 oh. years old. Christ. He would have been He would have been 53. I just turned 54. <laughs> so I think that... Or, or Will does this too. He has his characters in their like early 40s saying, I have, I have 12 teeth left. I'm oh, yeah. Teeth. Yeah. I think more so than Ulysses itself, but commentators on Ulysses make Molly sound like an old hag and mm-hmm. she's 33. So like, yeah. get the fuck out. Yeah. But now keep in mind, Joyce is writing, you know, a lot of this he based on a 1909 visit. So he would have been pushing 60 Mm -hmm. when Joyce met him, you know, even so. Mm. He mentions here, uh, daughter working the machine in the parlor. So the 1911 census describes his daughter Catherine as a typist. So hypothetically, the machine is a typewriting machine. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's what we're referring to here. Well, it makes sense in the, in the family. Yeah. yeah. A little bit about Monks himself. He was a, a very active union man. Hmm. He was active in the Dublin Typographical Providence Society, which the J- James Joyce online notes describes as, quote, a powerful Dublin printers union and benevolent society. Uh, Nanetti. Uh, Joseph Nanetti, we talked about his biography a bit in the episode just before this. Check that out if you want to know. He was once the the treasurer and the father of the chapel at the Freeman himself in the mm-hmm. 1880s. And uh, Nanetti and monks would have known each other well, both through work at the Freeman and also through the typist union. So, mm-hmm. or not typist, uh, printer's union. And that's about it. He worked. He worked on a bunch of papers in Dublin. He was, uh, you know, he he. I, I think became a trustee in the union later in life, and that was really what was put forward in his obituary was his uh, trade union membership and his work and the newspapers. And there's one more obituary surprise, which is that he was a um, a childhood friend of George Bernard Shaw. So they, which I guess Shaw confirmed. But yeah, they they apparently ran together when they were kids. Mm, so okay, he's sort of a, a quiet but interesting guy. Mm. Yep. Anything to add to that? No, no. Yep. Nanetti too was a, a big a big union guy. They mm. were both very pro union. And it was the feast of the Passover. He stayed in his walk to watch a typesetter neatly distributing type. Reads it backwards first. Quickly he does it. Must require some practice. That. Mangi di kikrathapi. Poor Papa with his Haggadah book, reading backwards with his finger to me. Pesach, next year in Jerusalem. Dear, oh dear, all that long business about that brought us out of the land of Egypt and into the house of bondage. Alleluia. Shema Israel. Adonai Eloheinu. No, that's the other. Then the twelve brothers, Jacob's sons. And then the lamb and the cat and the dog and the stick and the water and the butcher. And then the angel of death kills the butcher and he kills the ox and the dog kills the cat. Sounds a bit silly till you come to look into it well. Justice it means, but it's everybody eating everyone else. That's what life is after all. How quickly he does that job. Practice makes perfect. Seems to see with his fingers. Mr. Bloom passed on out of the clanking noises through the gallery onto the landing. Now am I going to tram it out all the way and then catch him out perhaps? Better phone him up first. Number? Yes. Same as Citron's house. 28. 28 double four. Okay. 
thoughts? So a lot of that seems like uh, gibberish and it would to me, but yesterday you showed me Nina Paley's cartoon of mm-hmm. the uh, the Passover animation of the, that's a parable, right? It's the, uh, it's a Jewish parable of... Uh, well, it's, um, it's a folk song. Now, I, I do want to preface this section by saying I am a Gentile with an interest in Judaism. I am definitely going to pronounce things wrong, but I'm doing my best. And if, uh, if, if, you would like to correct me i welcome it just uh send me a, an audio file and we can you know edit it into this and drop it into the next as a correction so uh i'll throw that and i i would just i would love to hear your passover experiences or your experience reading um this part of ulysses as a jewish person it would be really interesting to me so do reach out we love when our listeners reach out so and especially to correct me if i get something wrong which is possible so all right. So uh, you mentioned your friend is Nina Paley. Yes. Yeah, she did. Uh, she's an animator. She did a film called Seder Masochism, which is about Passover. Yes. And she part of it she included. I think she calls it embroidermation. Embroideration. <laughs> yes. Where and we'll drop this in um, when we talk about it. But it's a it's a folk song that's sung as part of the Passover Seder called Chad Gadja, mm-hmm. and she it's a recording from the. 50s she took and she put it over this it's stop motion animation technically but she's embroidered each of the little figures from the song and she spins it on a plate and it animates it yeah like uh, an old zoetrope yes it's absolutely incredible so um it is you you look i look i know animation work in it but sometimes you see a project and you go oh my god like, how does anyone have the patience and wherewithal to do to add that layer of complexity on top of it okay so yes it's about passover you remember the you know the imagery from the song because i i showed that to you is there anything else in here that jumps out try to refrain from referring to it as gibberish people's <laughs> faith we're talking about so just. well no it's that's what if you read it naively mm-hmm. you would think cat dog what yeah what am i what is this yeah, yeah you don't yeah. really know what he's talking is he about. having like a stroke mm-hmm. like you without the cultural context it does seem like gibberish yeah i think we've talked about that in the context of other i think most recently when we were talking about occult references in ulysses mm. if you don't have the 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 framework to talk about it It'll go right past you as just some word, word salad. Yeah, yeah, some something that yeah. Joyce has put in you can't figure out. But once you have even that kind of base level of knowledge, you uh, it, it just comes alive to you, and you're like, oh, I know exactly what he's talking about, and that's mm-hmm. is a, a great example of that. So. Yeah. So he's talking about the Exodus. Um, yes. So his dad's telling him um, the the old stories. Mm-hmm. Um, the when he's he's talking about first of all the um reading the text backwards mm-hmm. which yes if you're a typesetter i guess you'd get you very used to like mirror reading mm-hmm. so mangid is dignum mm-hmm. poor old dignum patrick dignum so he's he's thinking of patrick mm-hmm. dignum's funeral mm-hmm. um, he's thinking about the typesetter putting his name in and yeah mm-hmm. yeah 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 the song about the cat and the the goat mm-hmm. and everything the angel of death yeah, the clanking noises. He's talking about the tram. Yeah, no, every, and it's just the usual. Then we're back into his 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 brain, thinking yes. about where he's with all the logistics, where the address. And yeah. Now I know that in real life, Alexander Keys had a storefront. I want to say in Bray or Dalkey. Mm-hmm. So he's what he's thinking is he want to take it. Should I take a tram out there and catch him? You know, just kind of show up. Should I pop in? Mm. But then he's thinking I'm going to phone him first because what if he's not there? Right. And his phone number is 2844. Hmm. 2844. Okay. Because I think in the early 20th century, phone numbers were really short because yeah. not many people had phones. Yeah. 
Same as Citrin's house. Citrin is one of his old Jewish friends from oh, the early okay. years of his marriage. Okay. So uh, Citrin, I think, is mentioned in Calypso. So we've talked about him before. Mm-hmm. Citrin and Mastiansky are some of his old friends. Yeah, and the seeing the, the backwards letters that the typesetter is using, he thinks about how Patty's name will be put in backwards with all the other type for his obituary in the mm-hmm. evening paper and then the death of his friend makes him think of poor papa his father who's also died so Mm. that's kind of the sequence of things there and he thinks about poor papa with his haggadah book reading backwards with his finger to me so why is he reading backwards oh uh, um jewish script Uh, yes written in hebrew left yes the hebrew script is Mm -hmm. right to left so yeah um arabic as well semitic Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so, and then he mentions Pesach, which means Passover. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's a Hebrew word for Passover. Uh, what do you know about Passover? Um, celebrates the escape of when God wreaks vengeance on the Egyptians mm-hmm. with the plagues. Yes. And uh, Passover is when the angel of death passes over mm-hmm. the Jewish houses because they have the put up the mark of blood over their doors. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. And so this is commemorated every year um, in the Feast of Passover. Mm-hmm. It's in the springtime, like I mentioned. I believe the Last Supper was a, a Passover Seder. Mm. So there's a very like symbolically rich meal that you share with your family and friends called the Seder. Okay. And we'll talk about some of that imagery that shows up here. Um, so again, it, it ties back to the Eucharist again through mm-hmm. evolution of mm-hmm. the Passover. Mm-hmm. If it's at, if the Last Supper itself is a pass, mm-hmm. is a Seder, then you know yep. a, a lot of Christians wouldn't even know that, of course. Which is why Easter and Passover are around the same time. Mm-hmm. Like they're both movable feasts. Yep. So they don't like show up quite at the same time, but there are years where they'll overlap. So, um, yeah, and it's called Passover because the angel of death pass- knew mm-hmm. which doors to pass over because they were marked with the right. sacrifice, the, the sacrificial blood of a lamb. So. I remember from the movies. And I was going to say, as dramatized in the film, The Ten Commandments, starring Charlton Heston, mm-hmm. which that scene scared the shit out of me when I was a kid. Same. One of my childhood film traumas is that scene, and you hear the people screaming in the background, and the the they they show you they must have used like dry ice or something mm. coming down the set because it's all you know it's all a soundstage, right? But mm-hmm. where it's this this gray low hanging cloud that comes down, and there's like people falling out of windows, but it's perfectly silent, and it's it's an excellent horror scene, right? Yeah. So, and I was, I always thought, but I'm the firstborn. <laughs> me too. But as an adult, I'm like, well, I was a firstborn girl, so they would not have valued me, so I wouldn't well, have I was safe. the firstborn son, so yeah. I was screwed. The whole Herod thing was like, oh, that's me screwed. Yep. You immediately transpose mm-hmm. yourself into, yeah. yeah. And in the, in, yeah, and in the film, you see Moses and his family, you know, praying together, having a meal together. So that's, mm-hmm. I think, the meant to be the origin of Passover there. And then after this, the 10 plagues were reasonably persuasive, sort of. And uh, yada, 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 the Israelites were freed from bondage in Egypt and then wandered for 40 years in the wilderness before reaching the promised land of Israel. Hmm. Um, People make a big deal about how could they have been lost for 40 years? Come on, it's not that the Negev and all that isn't that mm-hmm. bloody big, and you know they know where, where North is. And, mm-hmm. But I, you know, when you have the word forty in ancient text, it usually means like a long time. It like just it means just, a long time. They want yeah, uh, forty a years. Long time. Yeah. yeah, it's a lot. A few years. They were there yeah. for a bit. That's all it means. Yeah. Mm. Um, 
Bloom describes this as all that long business that brought us out of the land of Egypt and into the house of bondage. Hmm. So what, what do you notice about that? But what, what stands out to you in that sentence? What's he talking about there? Like, this is like, you know, about Babylon, the, the exile yeah. there, isn't it? Well, this, this we, is what we call Bloomism, where he gets something wrong, but yeah. in a significant and intellectually interesting way. Okay, I'll let you explain. So, well, we're going to return to this theme of out of Egypt and into bondage, because mm-hmm. it should be out of Egypt and out of the house of bondage, yeah. right? Yeah. But he says out of Egypt and into the house of bondage. And that is something, a theme that we will return to multiple times throughout Aeolus. Okay. So I just want you to hold it in your head. We will describe it in this context, but it's a line that's repeated elsewhere in Ulysses and is done very deliberately. Okay. Out of the frying pan and into the fire. Mm-hmm. So it's not Joyce making a mistake. No. It's Bloom making I think a you'll mistake. find a genius makes no mistakes. Mm. I always say that. Mm. All of his makes mistakes are volitional and portals of discovery. <laughs> it's also a thing that he said, more or less. Have you ever been to a Passover Seder? No. So I've never been to a Seder with Jewish people, but in the 90s, the Catholic Church was like, we- we're into Moses. We could do satyrs as well. So I did attend a Catholic-run satyr in the mid-90s at our church. Oh, in America? Yeah, in America. Where we watched a film about Moses, you know, that would have been like of the quality you'd see on like Christian TV. Mm -hmm. And then we we did a satyr. We did it in in English. Not There was no Hebrew. But yeah, we did all the the bitter herbs and the salt water and the matzah and the unleavened bread. Yeah, and I I just thought it was really cool. Mm. And I was like, oh, I guess we'll do that all the time. No, we, we did it once. Oh. And I guess they were like, they were not into that again. But um, yeah. So let's talk a little bit about modern Passover. It's a week-long festival in the spring. Uh, on the first night or the first two nights, depending on which branch of Judaism you're a member of, uh, a Seder is held, which is this uh, it's very symbolically rich meal, um, is eaten, shared, you know, by a family or family and friends. Uh, prayers are said. Songs are sung and stories are told. The phrase that we see in this uh, passage, the um, next year in Jerusalem is sung at the close of the Seder. And I think is, is meant to, you know, meant to capture the feeling of wanting to reach the promised land, Jewish homeland. Mm-hmm. Um, that is also a recurring theme in Ulysses of trying to find your way home. Yeah. So it's, you know, it's a, it's obviously just like a little almost catchphrase that, Bloom remembers without much meaning attached to it, like almost an advertising slogan. Mm -hmm. That's how we end the Seder that dad made me sit through. But with that desire to return home, we also see how it connects with a lot of the themes in Ulysses. So he refers to poor Papa's Haggadah book. The Haggadah is uh, is a small book that contains the Passover liturgy, and it, it means the telling in Hebrew. And the name Haggadah is derived from the Hebrew version of Exodus 13.8, which commands, And thou shalt tell thy son in that day, saying, It is because of that which the Lord did for me when I came forth out of Egypt. Okay. So there's a commandment then to pass this message on to your sons. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, that's where the book gets its name from. So though Rudolf Virag, or Bloom, converted to Christianity in order to marry his wife Ellen... Clearly, he attempted to keep Jewish traditions alive in their home, despite his conversion. Yeah. Uh, there's a, a, it's mentioned later in Ulysses that he was converted by, I can't remember the name of the society, but it was something like the Society for the Religious Salvation of Jews or something like that. Mm. But it's like 
yeah, like that that was their their bat their their jam. They like to convert Jews to Christianity. So he converted through them, but clearly maintained a Jewish identity that he did mm-hmm. and and wanted to obey this, you know, this commandment in Exodus to pass these stories and traditions on to his son Leopold, who was not interested. I think a lot of people yeah. who would convert to say Islam would still have a sneaky Christmas. You know, you still have Turkey on the twenty fifth and all that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, because I think a lot of religious belief is um. It's stuff that it's ingrained in us when we're very very young, mm. right? It's not all like this. Lo- you know, it's not logical. It's very emotional, and it's it's deep within our psyche. Yeah. And you know, the things we feel nostalgic for, yeah. the things we yeah. had when we were young. So even if if it's a good faith conversion, yeah. he, he might still feel a bit Jewish. Yeah. And obviously enough, obviously he did because he he made uh, Leopold uh, do a Passover seder. So which is what Bloom is recalling here, his father leading that seder. Seder, and I kind of wonder if the seder was just father and son, or you know if there were other guests there, mm. or if it was just. You know, Father Bloom and Son Bloom, and just a really bored little Leopold. I think it's. I think it's bored Leopold. I think if you had guests and word gets out that they're doing Jewish stuff in the, in the Bloom household, um, yeah. Mm, Do you think people would care that much? Yeah. Really. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I do. Okay. Uh, interesting. Which Bloom refers to his his father Seder as quote all that long business. You know, which I can remember being a very bored kid sitting in the pews in church, feeling much the same. He was clearly not a diligent pupil, but some of the Passover rituals have lodged in his memory. Like he has a, Hmm. you know, a longing or a nostalgia for it. Maybe not to return to it, but really to return to a time when his father was alive, I think. As far as we know, like Bloom has not maintained these rituals with his his own family. Um, I can imagine this very bored little boy sitting patiently at this carefully laid table while his father futilely attempts to impart some religion it's kind of sad. and tradition. Yeah, it's dying. He's just not interested. Because yeah. yeah. what keeps it alive is the fact that you passed it on, and there's other people there, yeah. and you associate it with aunts and uncles and your yeah. extended family or what have you. Yeah. Like, if you just have Christmas turkey by yourself in an empty room, it ain't Christmas turkey, is it? Yeah, I think uh, Joyce does a good job of showing that kind of, that little sad withering of tradition in a diaspora. Like, Mm -hmm. because he shows it too with the the pork butcher near Bloom's house, who, despite being, you know, a Zionist, so he he must have a very strong belief in Judaism. Yeah. He's still selling pork. pork. Yeah. Yeah, because he wants to remain in business. I've read elsewhere was a, you know, a conundrum faced by a lot of jewish butchers in mm-hmm. turn of the century dublin bloom can recall some hebrew terms he remembers pesach mm-hmm. you know which is not you know it's hebrew but he refers to the the text for the seder as a haggadah book you know rather than just the the haggadah which signals that the young younger bloom's unfamiliarity with these most basic trappings. So it's like he kind of knows the name of it, but someone who uses it wouldn't call it a Haggadah book. Mm-hmm. That's just not what it was called. Mm-hmm. Right. So he like half remembers it, right. which we've talked we've looked at other places too in Ulysses where he kind of, he mixes up um, yeah. the names for Jewish things. Yes. He knows the words, but he's not quite sure where they all go. Yeah. This is, you know, kind of, I'd say mere trivia next to his botched recitation of the opening lines of the Seder. 
about how Moses brought us out of the land of Egypt and into the house of bondage. That's a more significant error. Mm -hmm. A story of the exodus from Egypt is usually framed as an escape from bondage that culminates in the Jews entering the promised land of Israel. Right. Uh, pretty, I think a story that's pretty central to Jewish identity. Mm -hmm. But as with many of these bloomisms, this apparent error may contain some roundabout wisdom, as we'll see. It's a Freudian slip before the word was coined. Right. Or when was the word Freudian slip? Called? I couldn't tell you off the top of my head, but yeah. it would have it must have been in this era. Because remember, yeah. this is 1904, but this wasn't written in 1904. Yeah, so it was written in the 20s. So the word might have been kicking around. It was written then. in the late teens. Late so. teens. Yeah, we'll yeah. have to look it up. Yeah. Accuracy notwithstanding, mm -hmm. uh, Bloom has a really strong emotional tie to his memories of Passover. Scholar Daniel Mark Fogel wrote that the Haggadah is tied to, quote, Bloom's most detailed memories of Jewish observances. Mm -hmm. Bloom tries to remember other bits of the Seder and in his usual fashion doesn't get them quite right. So one thing he says is Shema Israel Adonai Eloheinu. No, that's the other. So Bloom is trying to remember a prayer recited at the Seder and comes up with a truncated version of the Shema and catches himself thinking, that's the other one, that's the other prayer. So this is a prayer that's recited daily by observant Jews, um, as well as for the dying or by martyrs in their final moments. So shortening or misremembering this particular prayer demonstrates just how unfamiliar Bloom is with Jewish religious practices. Mm. Another subtle hint at Bloom's disconnect from Jewish tradition can be seen in his use of Alleluia rather than Hallelujah mm. uh, earlier in the passage. So they both mean praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. I actually had no idea what that word actually meant before I researched this, mm -hmm. but it means praise the Lord. But Hallelujah is the Hebrew version, whereas Alleluia is used in Latin Greek. Right. Uh, and so muddling up the single word mm -hmm. shows the influence of Christianity on Bloom's conception of religion. Yep. He continues with this passage, which you, you talked about. Um, do you want to read it again? Sure, sure. Then the twelve brothers, Jacob's sons, and then the lamb and the cat and the dog and the stick and the water and the butcher. And then the angel of death kills the butcher and he kills the ox and the dog kills the cat. Sounds a bit silly till you come to look into it well. Justice it means, but it's everybody eating everyone else. That's what life is, after all. Right. And as you correctly pointed out, this is an incredibly compressed version of the song Hadgadja, which is sung at the end of the Seder. Uh, so the title of it, Hadgadja, is Aramaic for one kid goat, mm -hmm. the lamb in Bloom's version. Bloom is not that far off in his memory of the song, which tells how each of these entities consume one another until the Almighty destroys the Angel of Death, and then the kid goat reappears at the end of the song. So Bloom interprets um, Hadgadja as a comment on kind of the dog-eat-dog -dog nature of life, a theme he'll return to in the scene at the Burton restaurant at the, in, in Les Dragonians, mm -hmm. the eighth episode of Ulysses. But Hadgadja can also be interpreted as the sort of various empires of the ancient world, rising and falling, subsuming one another in succession until the Almighty destroys pain and suffering, paving the way to the promised land for the chosen people, which are represented by the kid goat. Mm -hmm. I don't know that Bloom remembers all that, but he remembers all the animals eating one another. Yes. Even if you don't understand the language of the song, you'll get what the you'll you'll get the the story pretty easily. Mm. So like us, Joyce was a Gentile, so who's writing about 
Judaism here. So what did Joyce know about Judaism? Uh, what does Joyce know? I, I think he knows a good bit to be mm-hmm. able to drop this stuff in and mm-hmm. deliberately um, wreck it. Mm-hmm. To do like a false version of it and do it under control, he has to mm-hmm. understand to a fair degree of accuracy what their religion is. Mm-hmm. So he probably knows more about it than he would say Islam. <laughs> you know? Yeah. But he would have had access to many Jewish people, especially yeah. in, in Europe. That he, he had could have, lots he could of have, friends in Trieste. He yeah. could have asked. Yeah, yeah. 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 Joyce was really meticulous in his uh, research yeah. about Judaism. And he had many Jewish friends in Trieste. I think Joyce scholars would agree with you, Dermot, uh, that... Bloom's descriptions of the Seder show that Joyce was likely well acquainted with Passover and probably had access to a Haggadah. Mm-hmm. The scholar Fogel, who I quoted earlier, points to Bloom's largely, largely accurate paraphrase of Haggadah in particular mm. is something that probably you know would have come from talking to folks that he knew. Um, he would have had plenty of opportunities to obtain such a book. Um, he could have just borrowed one from his circle of Jewish friends in Trieste. He could have easily bought one. Uh, the Haggadah is available in translation in English, Italian, many other languages. And I don't think it would have been difficult difficult at all for him mm-hmm. to get a copy. Because one of his friends, um, Moses Lugach, who was the basis for that pork butcher of the same name in Calypso, was an active Zionist who eventually moved to is and settled in Israel and um, was teaching people Hebrew and uh, you know Joyce Joyce would have known and I, I think that guy alone mm-hmm. would have happily given him a book. So we can infer that Joyce and Bloom are aware of that commandment from Exodus to pass the story of Passover from father to son. Yeah. So while Christian convert Rudolph tried to fulfill this commandment. Leopold Bloom is unable to do so because his son Rudy died in infancy. We can't know if his, you know, if it was his lack of knowledge, had Rudy lived, it would be different. doesn't mm. matter because thematically that's very important. Bloom can't fulfill this commandment even right. if he wants to. And Bloom, was not, nothing would have stopped him from learning. Like he could have yep. gone to a rabbi or whatever and picked it up, yep. but he, why? Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, but, it, you know, the loss of his son, you mm. know, might have conjured these, like, yeah you know, painful memories. Like, I don't think he's ever fully yeah. grieved Rudy. Like it's, it's an ongoing grief 11 years on mm-hmm. and Bloom on top of it has held on to a sense of lingering guilt over his rejection of his father's faith. Cause I think when he was younger, he would have been similar to Steven. He's like, Oh, this is just stupid. Yeah. I don't believe this. And, and we know this because he says so in Ithaca, there's a little question and response here. Why did Bloom experience a sentiment of remorse? Because in immature impatience, he had treated with disrespect certain beliefs and practices. So what follows that then in in the Ithaca episode is a list of Jewish beliefs and practices that Bloom treated disrespectfully as a younger man. Mm -hmm. It really calls into mind Stephen's um, agonbite of Inwit, the guilt he feels at not acceding to his mother's wishes to pray for her. Mm -hmm. This gnawing guilt, you know, due to his own agnosticism. So Bloom, in his grief, preserves in his desk door his father's suicide letter and also his father's Haggadah. Mm-hmm. He still has it in his desk in his, uh, in his sitting room. Bloom has had a much longer time to come to terms with his guilt and grief than Stephen has. And he does possess a more mature viewpoint, having shifted from his youthful disrespect. And he reflects on that in Ithaca as well. How do these beliefs and practices now appear to him? Not more rational than they had then appeared not less rational than other beliefs and practices now appeared. 
Yeah. So I think given that, that Bloom probably, even if Rudy had lived, probably wouldn't have celebrated Passover with mm -hmm. him, but he still kind of feels bad about it. Mm -hmm. The guilt and the grief persist, uh, but Bloom has kind of found a middle ground just through maturity and I think healing time. He doesn't embrace his father's religion, but he doesn't deride it either, you know, which I think is if, if anyone has ever been a youthful atheist, you know, the feeling of like, oh, this is all stupid. But at some point, like, it's not really sustainable. It's not a sustainable worldview, mm -hmm. you know, like even if you you maintain your atheism, like you still have to kind of just respect other people around you if for no other reason than to make your life easy. Right. You know. Bloom has been able to mature into a kind of good Jew on his own terms. You know, he's an ethical and moral man for the most part. And in some instances notwithstanding, but, you know, he mm. does his best. And I think generally we see him as a good person. Yeah. Let's talk about hypostasis. You didn't see that coming, did you? What's hypostasis? Something Aristotle, isn't it? Or I forget. Mm, it's uh, maybe more of the Aquinas era. Oh, okay. But, um, well, similar enough yeah, though. Yeah. Okay, fine. Uh, so the meaning of Bloom and Stephen then, in the absence of a you know biological son, uh, this introduces a new possibility to pass knowledge onto a son figure, mm -hmm. even if it's not his mm. biological son. So Malachi four six states that the coming of Elijah quote shall turn the heart of the mm -mm, biblically please fifteen percent more biblically. Shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers. Right. And do you, do you know how Elijah's arrival is heralded in Ulysses? Yeah, it's what's it? Is it the American preacher with the pamphlet on the Liffey? Yes, it's the little crumpled up throwaway that yes. Bloom throws to the seagulls right. and it floats down the Liffey. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. So Elijah is heralded by this little piece of trash. Mm -hmm. So a father-son re reconciliation is surely on the horizon. The seeds of atonement between father and son are planted in these closing episodes of Ulysses, even though it doesn't reach maturity within the narrative. Mm -hmm. Right. It, that potential remains open. Stephen and Bloom's meeting isn't just any old meeting. It is a manifestation of hypostasis. Mm -hmm. You can add a little air horn sound right, here. Right, it's God the Father and uh, Christ, isn't that the thing? Or yeah, the, it's the a union of, of Father and Son, more specifically the union of God the Father and God the Son. Yes. The Holy Trinity plays no role in the Passover Seder, but um, our scholar Fogel sees Passover imagery in Bloom and Stephen's overlapping thoughts early in Ulysses. Mm -hmm. And that parallax or that overlap is one of the, 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 the strongest signs of hypostasis. So consider then Stephen's description of a bowl of bitter waters in Telemachus, which is triggered by a cloud passing over. Mm. Okay. Fogel connects this bitterness to the maror, which is a bitter herb eaten at Passover as a symbol of the bitter lives of the Israelites in Egypt. I think it's like it's similar to like horseradish or mm -hmm. something like that. Um, while Dublin Bay is generally regarded as a bowl of bitter waters, Fogel points out that Stephen says the bowl of bitter waters is behind him as he looks out to sea. So given Stephen's vantage point, this bitter water functions as a symbol of hardship like the Maror. Stephen certainly has a smorgasbord of bitter memories to choose from. Um, on top of all of this, Dublin Bay is a salty body of water and could be symbolic 
carpus, which are the vegetables that are dipped in salt water during the Seder as well. So there's a saltiness, mm -hmm. there's a bitterness. And that salty water in the Seder symbolizes the tears shed by the Israelites in Egypt, just as the bitter, salty waters of Dublin Bay remind Stephen of his personal loss. So in Fogel's view, Stephen is surrounded by Passover imagery, whether he realizes it or not. Hmm. At a parallel hour, P-A-R-A-L-L-E-L. -L -L. Correct. I just saw it, so it helped. Bloom is struck with the vision of a promised land turned barren and foreboding. So as he's walking home from the pork butcher shop with his kidney in tow, the same cloud passes over the sun mm -hmm. and Bloom is plunged into a momentary grief and despair. Do you remember where he has that little time slip where he sees the barren wasteland? Yeah. So he sees the promised land as, like I said, a desolate wasteland where his people wander the earth from captivity to captivity, from the land of Egypt into the house of bondage, right? Uh, an image of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for 40 years after they escape Egypt. Right. So it's not all roses and peaches right away. It's not all milk and honey. Yeah. 40 years is a long time. Uh, this image is in line with Bloom's misquotation in Eolus. Uh, he sees only bitterness lying ahead if he were to seek the promised land, which in that case, he's referring directly to, you know, Jewish settlements in uh, Palestine and mm -hmm. Agendat Natayim near the Sea of Galilee. He also sees salt. He glimpses age crusting him with a salt cloak, end, end quote. Um, and once the dark cloud has passed over, both Stephen and Bloom are released from these dark visions. So there's a bit of Passover in there, mm -hmm. you know. But it, it, more importantly, it represents the psychic union of Stephen and Bloom, their temporal hypostasis as the father and son figures in Ulysses. And it fulfills Ulysses as... An epic of two races, of the Irish and the Jews, which is how Joyce himself described this book. Scholar Abby Bender writes in her book, Israelites and Aaron, colon, Exodus Revolution and the Irish Revival, that Joyce incorporates the story of the Exodus from Egypt as an expression of the ways in which both the Irish and the Jews dwell in cultural memory, saying that the Irish remember the dead, quote, as if they were here, while the Jews remember the past, quote, as if they were there. So it's sort of parallel but different ways of, of dealing with a, a harsh cultural memory. Uh, and Bender goes on to quote Rabbi Neil Gilman saying, quote, Exodus inhabits an, an eternal present. It is contemporaneous. It is happening today to us. Do you, do you think that Irish people have a similar headspace when it comes to the atrocities in Irish culture? Yeah, you don't, you don't want to dwell on them too much. It'd make you miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're never forgotten either. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a I remember reading about a cartoon of two British soldiers kicking an Irishman mm -hmm. in a ditch, and one of the soldiers is saying, "We will never forgive you for what we have done to you." Mm -hmm. And there's an Angolan proverb: "The man who throws the stone forgets, but he who is hit remembers mm -hmm. forever." Yeah. So the um, the, the problem <laughs> right there is our friends across the Irish Sea uh, are very keen to forget. Mm -hmm. Or to blame mm -hmm. the victim, yeah. and uh, the people, but the people that were hit will not forget. But we don't like the Irish. I don't think are bitter about it. Mm -hmm. They could be. I mean, you, and some people mm -hmm. are, but in general, people here are happy and gone with their lives, mm -hmm. and they're strangely forward-looking now. Mm -hmm. From you know, we moved back here a year ago. I, I was gone thirty years. It's a very different mental mm -hmm. landscape in the country now from what it was in nineteen nineties, whatever. And I hope that keeps up. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's it's fascinating to see how it's changed but yeah the past is still like a living thing mm-hmm. here like you can see it in the landscape as mm-hmm. well but uh, yeah my certainly my parents generation have like weird mm-hmm. memories of because i think about your father being angry at the neighbor who was a super a super yeah who, and so that history seemed to be very alive in their present yeah like basically begrudging mm-hmm. uh, a neighbor because their great great grandparents took soup from the british during mm-hmm. the potato famine and... but I, I find when i share that story with other mm-hmm. irish friends i have to add context which makes me think that Mm. younger generations aren't really looking at one another that way no they're not and they shouldn't that would be terrible um but it, but it shows how long that the tale of that yeah uh went on and it's, i'm sure there's still you'll find people out there like individuals who might still think like that um do you do you find this kinship between the irish and the jews that is uh we will see as a recurrent theme especially in aeolus but throughout mm. ulysses today no i don't think so i wouldn't think so um could be wrong. As a colonized um, people kind of trying to find their way in the world. Big difference is the Jews were in the diaspora, whereas mm-hmm. the Irish were still on their own land. And mm-hmm. it, that, that... Ah, I'm going to I'm going to interrupt here because I'm noticing you are comparing modern Jews and the Irish. The Irish nationalists in this era like to compare the historic Israelites in Egypt yeah. with the modern Irish in whatever right. time they're living so in. So they're resonating with the, the biblical, biblical Israelites Jews, yeah. rather than the modern diaspora yeah. mm-hmm. people. Okay, okay. Yeah, uh, t- again, but there. <laughs> you don't have to, that's a theme we're going to return to often yes. as we move through Eolus. Yeah. But I just want to introduce that question. You don't have to answer it right yeah. now. Uh, yeah, like today, it. no, maybe then, yes. I mean, because we know too that the um, early progenitors of Sinn Féin were uh, cheering on the Orange Boer forces in South Africa. Yeah, which, don't spoil my... But, uh, uh, they were so, also openly anti-Semites yeah, as well. It, so, it's very strange you know. to look, to try to like figure out like the landscape, mm-hmm. the mental landscape yep. of these people. And yep. like I said, the mental landscape of the last 30 years has changed so much, never mind like 120 or whatever yep. we're talking about here. Yeah, we'll, we'll go into that more of Irish nationalists, simultaneous... Uh, identification with people of israel and rejection of contemporary jews yeah i can't remember which section i covered that in but we'll we'll look into that because it's Mm. it's it's hard to wrap your head around um as an outsider uh as an insider too (laughs) yeah so let's well i think we're both outsiders because we're removed by time Time, and the past is a foreign country often all right so if we Go back to Ulysses. Let's look at Ulysses from more of a metaphysical point of view. Mm-hmm. Um, metempsychosis allows Ulysses' characters to inhabit many presents at once. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so historic, you know, Jewish leaders like Moses can easily transpose onto, say, Leopold Bloom, or Charles Stuart Parnell, mm-hmm. people living or who had recently lived in contemporary Dublin. They're contemporary to 1904. In the same way, a mythical hero like Odysseus could be present in Leopold Bloom. Hmm. Uh, the eternal present of the Haggadah is a, really an excellent model for Ulysses itself. Through the Seder, Jews fulfill the commandment to tell the story of Exodus from Egypt. But as Bender points out, quote, the more one tells the story of the departure from Egypt, the more praiseworthy he is. So within the narrative of Ulysses, Joyce tells the story of Moses and the Israelites again and again and again. In Aeolus alone, we see Bloom remembering the Exodus and his Passover memories. And then the news, the newspaper men in the office discuss John F. Taylor's speech comparing the Israelites and the Irish 
And then Stephen's parable of the plums also employs imagery from Exodus. Hmm. And I know, and I can't remember it off the top of my head. You probably have to wait till we get to the parable of the plums, dear listeners. But I know there's a reading of this where the parable of the plums is actually meant as foreshadowing for Bloom's, you know, insights into Passover because it it is written from right to left like the Haggadah. Okay. I think that was Richard Elman. I'm not sure whoever said it. It's interesting, but it's a stretch. Hmm. It's a little stretchy. The Haggadah, like Ulysses, meanders through various interpolations, prayers, songs, and stories in the telling of the Exodus story. Very much like Ulysses' many stylistic digressions and interpolations, the Haggadah, like the Ithaca episode that we looked at a little today, employs a question and answer format, notably the four questions. The Haggadah also echoes words from earlier passages, throughout its later passages, just like Ulysses. So, you know, there's phrases like in Ulysses, we have Agendat Natayim, Elijah is coming, what perfume does your wife wear that are kind of echoes of their original context. And finally, the Haggadah is meant to incorporate the whole of Jewish experience, beginning from the Exodus from Egypt and folding in later historical events, even including things such as the Holocaust and the foundation of Israel, And in his book, Reading Joyce's Ulysses, which is one of my favorite Ulysses books, scholar Daniel Schwartz writes, quote, Joyce draws upon this elastic and protean tradition to imply that Ulysses is to be regarded as the Haggadah of the Irish experience, Mm. which I find very interesting. Let's return at last to Bloom's description of the Jews being brought out of the land of Egypt and into the house of bondage. Like I promised. Okay, you with me still? Yep. Bloom's mistake seems plain on its face since it's so contrary to the traditional Passover story. Uh, Bender believes that this inversion is Bloom misremembering the Hallel, which is a prayer said during important festivals, including Passover. And we learn in Ithaca that Bloom has not only held on to his father's Haggadah, but has marked a certain passage with his father's eyeglasses. An ancient Haggadah book in which a pair of horn-rimmed convex spectacles inserted mark the passage of Thanksgiving in the ritual prayers for Pesach, Passover. Bender thinks that's this prayer, the, the Hallel, and which is made up of Psalms 113 through 118. I won't make you read all those. Mm-hmm. You have to go to your own holy book of choice. But these, this prayer gives thanks for freedom from enslavement in Egypt. So this is likely the prayer that's marked by his... Uh, horn-rimmed convex spectacles. Bloom is in the wilderness of his own life on June 16th, so he isn't ready to hear a prayer of thanksgiving just yet. If we look at Exodus as a Jewish parallel to Odysseus's wanderings and Odysseus's struggles as a parallel to Bloom's struggles on Bloom's day, Aeolus is a point in the narrative where Bloom slash Moses slash Odysseus experiences this major setback and crushing disappointment. They have glimpsed the promised land, Ithaca or Israel, only to be blown off course at the last moment. Um, you know, Moses died on top Mount Pisgah without ever entering the Holy Land, mm-hmm. which is we'll see at the end of Eolus. You can read ahead in the book if you want to know what I'm talking about. Sure, 
blooms out of Egypt, but his trials and tribulations are only just beginning. And Eolus is not an easy chapter for Bloom. We're kind of ending the part where like things go well for him. Mm-hmm. They do not go well at the end. Uh, he ends in defeat. So in Bloom's misquote, then, Bender sees the paradox of the Seder, which conjures memories of the origin of the Jewish nation but glosses over the central struggles of those 40 years in the wilderness. She points out that the Israelites' misery during this era is not recounted in the Haggadah, so usually in the form of their longing to eat from the flesh pots of Egypt, another of those repeated phrases in Ulysses, Mm -hmm. Uh, their rejection of Moses for a time, their worship of the golden calf, the sexiest scene in the Ten Commandments that I did not understand as a kid. But um, all those people were having a big orgy around that golden calf, I think, is what we're meant to take away from that. So mm-hmm. uh, Moses comes down and ruins their fun. Anyway, Exodus is not just a celebration of newfound freedom, but also the imposition of an enormous responsibility upon those attempting to establish a nation. It's easy to have that sort of ecstatic moment of freedom, but actual nation building is hard and long and dirty and tiring and not sexy at all Hmm. it's not like riding around on the golden calf at all uh this is bloom's critique of the story told in the haggadah it remembers the elation of initial freedom while excluding all that gnawing uncertainty of exile and the cognitive dissonance of yearning for the relative comforts of bondage so the expression next year in jerusalem is meant to end the seder on a note of hope a reminder that entry into the land of milk and honey is at hand However, as we see in Bloom's rejection of the, the, the Zionist mission in, in Palestine, um, he rejects the very premise of the sentiment. Rather than milk and honey, Bloom starts imagining desiccation and screech owls and sand, and he just hates sand. Second Star Wars reference today. Uh, Bloom's personal trauma leaves him living in an, in an eternal present, like we talked about. Um, but unlike the ritualized present of the Seder, Bloom's memories leave him roiling in unresolved pain and anguish. Bloom is unable to work through his trauma because he is trapped in a present buttressed by painful memories. Bender goes so far as to say that, quote, the Haggadah is, in a sense, a lie, unquote, paraphrasing the sentiment from Ernest Renan, who is also cited elsewhere in Ulysses, but he says, quote, a nation being a people who collectively remember, but who have collectively forgotten the traumas of their history. Uh, in Cyclops, Bloom describes a nation as the same people living in the same place. Um, home is people sharing space, and that's enough. Bloom's nationalism, in this case, rejects that dog-eat-dog system of justice he sees in Hadgadja, which he re- rejects in Lestragonians as well. He chooses love instead. Love loves to love love and the, all the people who love each other. Uh, Bloom also rejects the need for a messiah, the prophet Elijah, who enters homes at Passover as a herald of the Messiah, by Bloom is crumpled up and thrown into the lifty, drifting on the currents heading out to sea. Bloom holds space in Ulysses as a Moses figure, and thus by extension a Parnell figure, a really key little parallel here that we'll get into in later episodes of Bloom's Barnacles. Uh, Bloom is a savior who will lead his people to a new Blue Muslim, mm-hmm. as we'll see in a much, much later episode about Cersei. Like Moses and Parnell, when Bloom is suddenly elevated as a utopian savior in Cersei, he is just as quickly betrayed by his supporters. A nationalist project centered on a single messianic figure is doomed to fail as all messiahs will be revealed to be all too human because they're human. They're made of meat like the rest of us. 
the perfection demanded of Zion is unattainable on this earthly plane, except Sheba, my, my kitty here. If you can see, if you, you know, you want to see what she looks like. She's quite perfect. Available five bucks a month on Patreon. <laughs> Bender describes Ulysses then as ending in a hopeful state of exile. Rather than with a triumphal homecoming like the Odyssey, Ulysses is a story of acceptance rather than striving. Bender points out that the final words that appear on the page after Molly's final yes are Trieste, Zurich, Paris. The cities where Bloom wrote his epic in exile and a voluntary exile that led him out of the house of bondage in Ireland. Hmm. Do you have any closing thoughts? No, that's a lot. Yeah. You wouldn't think Judaism would be so complicated. Oh, no. Judaism, you know, Judaism has a lot to say about stuff. That's that's all I'm I'm willing to go into. My friend, uh, Nancy Beeman, the Mm -hmm. animation Mm -hmm. director, she sent me a note. Mm -hmm. She saw one of our lectures that I sent her, Mm -hmm. and she said uh, that uh, one of her friends said, Judaism is lots and lots of lists. (laughs) Yeah, and so is Ulysses. That was something someone asked us about at our live show back in June is... uh, you know, if the the lists in Ulysses are meant to be like, you know, occult chants or mantras or mm-hmm. something like that. And I don't quite remember. Um, hmm. That's yeah. right. I remember that. But um, I wasn't, that was the one question in the q and I wasn't quite sure what to do with. And, hmm. you know, I said to the audience member at the time, I'll have to look into that. But hmm. um, I, I think that insight from your friend Nancy that Judaism is has lots of lists in it mm-hmm. and it's, it can be quite legalistic like the, yeah, the talmud has an answer for everything it's so. very legal it's a legal code yeah. it's like islam islam mm-hmm. there's a, a famous travel book written in the 70s by jonathan raban called arabia to the looking glass mm-hmm. and he described a lecture that he went to in cairo given by a famous egyptian um expert on islam and he, he's the, the lecturer said that islam should be regarded as judaism perfected and okay. um, basically it's not this like you know it, it emerges from Judaism and in its mind corrects all the mm-hmm. in things that the the accretions that it built up around mm-hmm. it. So it's this kind of desire to like go back to the original pure source. But again, mm-hmm. Islam like Judaism, very legalistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got Sharia law, but Judaism is Judaic law, and mm-hmm. so you have this thing that's a religion, a culture, a law code, mm-hmm. um, and that's it's one reason why I'm so interested in them. It's, this like very long history of um, these mm-hmm. societies that um, have a very particular way of looking at the world that's mm-hmm. quite different from anything in the West, you know, because mm-hmm. um, you had a very different mindset. Mm-hmm. But but I think like a lot of people have this awful construction, Judeo-Christianity, which is a 20th century carbuncle that was put together, I think, in the 50s as a counter to communism. Okay. And Or the early 20th century in any event. But it's it's, it's quite recent. The idea of Judeo-Christianity mm-hmm. would have been a bizarre idea to people in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. And I, some people have even tried to construct Judeo-Christian Islamic. It's like, please stop. Please stop this. Please, <laughs> please stop now. Please stop. Seriously. Could you use the word Abrahamic? You know, that would be fine because there is like a common root to these three religions, but it, it kind of that these kind of constructions erase the, the very serious differences between mm-hmm. the, these religions are interesting because they're different, mm-hmm. not because they're, they're Venn diagrams. They're Venn diagrams, just the, the yeah. overlaps are interesting, but, the things, the, highs in there as but well. the things that are interesting are the things that are different. It's the mm-hmm. differences that make them worth reading about to see how somebody from a different culture looks at things and what mm-hmm. separates them. Mm-hmm. Because um, we know what doesn't separate us, but it's the things that 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 make people look at the world in a completely different way. 
that I find interesting. And I, 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 I'm not one of the people who goes, oh, we're all the same, man. It's like, no, we, but there's, a, there's the common core that we all orbit around. But then with, without that, we have these like, like ellipses that are like, these, these are different from these and these are different from them. Um, but yeah, no, it's an, that's an interesting travel book because again, the time it was written kind of very precedes like a lot of stuff that's happened since. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he traveled around uh, Rabban. He, he traveled around Yemen and the Gulf states and Egypt. And it's fascinating little time capsule in its own right now. Um, but yeah, that kind of struck me as like looking at Islam and Judaism as much closer to one another than either would be to Christianity in certain respects, at least as, mm-hmm. as they're practiced in the more strict, austere versions in any event. Yeah. Um, as we as we become more like Leopold Bloom, these differences get you know, much harder to to, to see mm-hmm. because we're all kind of westernized, and mm-hmm. atomized, and what we're all swimming in the same. We're all in the soup together. I think yeah. that's what he said. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. of Marx at all that a solid melts into air. When things melt; they take on a liquid state. That's what's happening now in the world. Yeah. Marx would look at this and go, mm-hmm. "It's all melting into air, just right on the schedule." Things don't <laughs> melt in, into air, don't <laughs> they? evaporate into mm. air. So you should go call your friend Karl Marx. I will uh, on the Adam and Eve phone from mm. Proteus and mm-hmm. tell him he's wrong. Okay. And say, "Was? Wo ist das?" <laughs> <laughs> I think that's German. Sprechen and scheißen. I'm not, I'm not Sprechen the Scheiße. Okay, we're going to end on Sprechen the Scheiße. <laughs> okay. All right, thanks for listening. Right. We'll see you in two weeks. Bye. Um. Hey, podcast. Welcome to Hey, Dermot. Maybe we should do Room Tone. Yeah.